at that stage, I think I would have actually grabbed myself by the lapels and said, learn the kanji. Today, I have someone else whom I've just met for the first time. His name is Adam, and he's been in Japan since 1981. Started his first company in 85, and I'm not going to go through his company business right now. We're going to find out who Adam is. That's the first thing we're going to do. So without any further ado, let's talk with Adam. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I was introduced to you through Ruth. Yes, Ruth Jarman. Right. And you've been in Penn, like, mm. like I said, I know you've been here since 81. Mm. And you came here, let's start off first of all, where were you born? I was born in a small village uh, by the sea in North Devon in the southwest of England. Uh, I think a village of just a few thousand people. Uh, my mother was from London originally and her family moved to Devon. Uh, I think it was at a time in Britain when people were starting to think about having second homes in the countryside, so I think the family was already familiar with North Devon. It was a place to go to spend a nice time in the summer by the beach. Well, it wasn't too long after the war. Uh, well, when they moved, that would have been about 20, 30 years before that. So I was born in 1957, Okay. Uh, 13, uh, 12 years after the war. Um, so I grew up by the beach, and the beach was a very important part of my childhood. Uh, I just love spending time on the so beach. So you learned to swim b before you remember? Oh, uh, I do actually remember learning how to swim. So the sea itself was quite rough. There were uh, many days of waves and surf, uh, which I very much enjoyed. But it didn't make it that easy to learn how to swim properly. So actually, it was when I was at school that I learned how to swim. But that memory hasn't, I haven't dragged that one up for years. So uh, yeah, I now remember swimming my first width of the pool. How old were you? Let's see, probably about six or seven, okay. I suppose, yeah. So, mm. But you weren't afraid to go into the waves and stuff because the undertow could take you in. I mean, how far mm. did you go into the ocean? Oh, it was actually a very safe beach, even though oh, there were uh, big waves. Big waves, okay. Yeah. It, uh, it didn't have any of those undertows. okay. Well, at least the part of the beach where we used to swim. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the safest beaches I've ever been to, actually. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but um, in retrospect, I discovered that. Uh, but beautiful stretch of sand, hard sand, so beautiful for making sand castles. You lived there till what age? I lived there until I went to university. Okay, so do you have siblings? Yep, I have uh, two sisters who are older than me and one brother who's older than me. Hmm. A family hmm. of four? Four, yep, and I was very much the last one, six years adrift of my nearest sister. How many years between you and the oldest sister? Uh, so another two two years above for the next sister. I think it's two years. Oh, your years. brother's the oldest. He's the oldest. He's uh, 13 above me. 13 years above you? Yep. Okay, so let me just tell you what I've found out most of the time, depending hmm. upon what type of family you grew up in, if it was very religious or not. Hmm. Was it very religious? No, we went to church. Okay. but the not Church of England? It was Church of England, so okay. it was a Protestant <laughs> church, but uh, right. we, didn't go there, we didn't go there religiously. I hear you. Uh, we went there from time to time for the big occasions like Christmas, Easter. Um, and then occasionally, and I used to go to Sunday school. So my mother made sure that I went to Sunday school. What kind of work did your father do? Uh, well, he was with the family business. So a couple of generations up, um, we had um, a family business that was uh, essentially, and I, uh, I'm beginning to hesitate here because I don't know very much about it, um, but it was essentially in the agricultural sphere. 
Uh, it was selling seeds. Uh, they were providing support for various activities on the farm. Uh, so it was in Japan, you have the JA, you've got the JA cooperative, and it was like a really, really tiny version of that, I think, in North Devon. So, uh, so serving the needs of farmers. Was it area. on your father's side or your mother's that side? That was on my father's side, yeah. So his father and, uh, again, I think the father above him, uh, they got this business going. And it was quite successful for a time. I, I heard the other day, actually, I learned this for the first time, that they, I think they were buying and selling something like a fifth of the wool in Britain at one stage. Uh, so it was quite successful at one time. Uh, and then it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> uh, they sold up eventually to a, 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 big, a, a big company. Um, and by the time it got to my father's generation, it was essentially being wound up and people were moving on into their own activities. But my father was actually working as, an, he was doing some accounting work, I think, for the firm, and he had his own little farm. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I was growing up, the farm was there in my, uh, not my everyday life, because my father wasn't living with us. So he actually left home before I was born, uh, and I only knew him quite vaguely, really. So you never knew your father? A little bit, but you know, not in great depth. So they separated? Yeah, even before I was born. Okay. Hmm. So did you have any male influence in your life? My brother, of course, was a very important male influence in my life. So he took that position? Uh, at least in my imagination. Right. He was the person uh, I was worried about, you know, am I, am I going to get into trouble if I do mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. with my brother? Right. Um, but uh, apart from him, there were various figures around me growing up, but um, nobody... The interesting thing, actually, that I noticed when I was growing up was that I didn't notice that my father wasn't there. Um, and I think it was partly because of uh, the tremendous capacity for love that my mother had. Um, I'd go to school, and I'd notice that all the other kids had fathers, but that didn't actually make me think, why haven't I got one? And no one teased you or anything like that? I was yeah. very fortunate in that respect. Yeah, yeah. maybe your mother mm. came there and planted a seed in their heads. <laughs> <laughs> or your brother. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Could be. And they, yeah. And they said, okie dokie, mm. we're going to leave Adam mm. alone. Where did you grow up? I grew up in California. Okay. Yeah, Los Angeles. Mm. See, and there's a thing that I say, but I'll t tell you over, over breakfast. Okay. Some things I say about that. Yes, I grew up then in, in the 50s mm. as well. I was born in 52. Mm -hmm. You were born in 57. Yep. So it was around the same time. Mm -hmm. um, we're both baby boomers. It was an interesting time to grow up because things were pretty settled because we'd just finished you know, a decade earlier the, world, the Second World War. Mm. And I think people were settling in, trying to have a normal life. Funnily enough, I just saw a video of Sunset Boulevard from 1955, just yesterday, uh, remarkable. Almost no houses, no buildings, oh. just the palm trees. Um, but do you remember that aspect of Los Angeles? Well, see, in Los Angeles, this is true. We had houses everywhere. Hmm. There were houses everywhere, but no real tall buildings. Hmm. And I do remember, even on our street, there were palm trees everywhere. Hmm. We were lined with palm trees. Hmm. And I was so saddened in the, I'd have to say in the, early 70s when they cut them all down. Oh, I didn't know they even been cities. In yeah. the, oh yes, they cut. Mm. Not all of them, mm. I'm talking about in certain neighborhoods. Yeah. Some areas they left them up, but some mm. they cut them down. Yeah. And it's, anyway, that's another yeah. story. But I've got a connection with California through the beach. Because as I was growing up, we had wooden lie-down surfboards. Um, I don't know what they were made of. Some kind of balsa wood, very light. Uh, we still have them. 
uh, and it's a great pleasure now when I go back to the beach in the summer in Britain to get and up this old wooden board and surf on that. But uh, when I got to about the age of 15, I started seeing copies of Surfer magazine uh, from the US. Incredibly cool. People like Jerry Lopez and so on surfing on these massive waves in Hawaii. Uh, and I got hooked and I thought I've got to do that. And in those days in Britain, do you know what the surfboards were called, the ones that you stand up on? No. They were called Malibu boards. They were called Malibu boards because of Malibu Beach. Uh, so that's what British people associated with those boards. That's where they used them. Is In your waves, where you lived, were high enough for you to surf? Well, they weren't the size of. Them. I understand that. They were. They were certainly big enough to surf. So I mean, on a on a on a big day, it would be probably about two point five meters. So not massive. Uh, but I always found those two point five meter waves pretty scary. Uh, but I just really enjoyed getting out at 7 o'clock in the morning on a summer's day, you know, the wind just maybe blowing offshore and being on my own in the sea. Uh, that was one of the greatest pleasures of growing up in North Devon. Also, when you were growing up, were you more academic or were you more sports-minded? Both, actually. Um, I really enjoyed schoolwork. I just took to it. Um, I really liked the process of learning and finding out things that I didn't know. Uh, but at the same time, apart from the surfing, I played tennis. Uh, I played squash. Well, I'm starting, starting at what age? Uh, tennis, that started at around the age of 10 or 11. Okay. Uh, and also archery. I did some archery. Uh, then squash came a little bit later when I was about 16, 17. I really enjoyed that game. Also, I played a very, very small amount of badminton. But then, of course, on the beach, we'd always be playing the game of rounders, which uh, some people say is the origin of baseball. Okay. It's a very kind of simple form of baseball that we play on the beach. Um, French cricket, which you may not know about, but it's a very, it's a fun game for kids. Uh, you can play it with a tennis racket okay. and a tennis ball. And the, the person holding the bat, they're protecting their legs below the knee. So you're trying to get the person's legs below the knee with a tennis ball and the person is just defending their legs with the, the tennis But once you hit it then? Yep, or if you catch the ball when it's hit, or what do you call it? One hand, one bounce. So if it bounces mm. once, one you can catch you it with one hand. hand. Yeah, then the person's out, yeah. That's, yeah, but for kids, it was just a great game. I yeah. never heard of that. That's the first mm. time hearing that. Yeah, uh, but anyway, so we did a lot, I did a lot of that. And the other thing that I really enjoyed by the beach was catching prawns. So we had rocks by the beach, tidal pools, and uh, there'd be prawns in the pools, get a net, get them out. So um, yeah, that was the kind of way that I spent my, my childhood. But certainly at school, I really enjoyed studying. The interesting thing was that at Sunday school, I was the worst kid in the place. I do not know what it was that kicked in um, when I went into that church on a Sunday morning, but suddenly I was the bad boy. So everybody was told to sit on this side of the aisle. I'd go and sit on the other side. and. From age, what age do you remember this? I must have been about six, seven, something like that. But there was just something about that whole context that I just could not, for some reason, be serious about. And I don't know what it was. Uh, so I never thought about rejecting anything like God or I had no kind of animosity towards the Christian church or that specific church or the vicar himself. You know, nice guy. But there was just something about it that I thought, no, I'm not going to behave here. Um, so uh, that's something I've got to look out for moving on to the next life is just how I'm get judged on that particular so part so of my so childhood. So you, you never stopped? 
Uh, well, no, I mean, uh, I never stopped what? Being the bad boy? Being the bad boy. Uh, well, when you actually, get into churches. No, but I mean, the, the strange thing was I was goody two-shoes at school. Okay. Um, so uh, I um, never caused or never intentionally caused any problem at school. I just really enjoyed the academic process. Uh, and I think that's probably, you know, I was just being very selfish. I enjoy doing this, so I'm, I don't want any disruption. What kind of subjects did you really find most fascinating for you? Difficult to say. I think it was actually the process. It was just learning. It was finding something that I didn't know and then knowing how to know it. Like, I remember having this big challenge with negative numbers. Like, you go 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, and then what's this minus 1 thing? You know, I don't get this at all. And I remember really struggling with that. Probably, in retrospect, I was struggling with it for months, but I think it must have been maybe a week or two. Uh, but I just couldn't get this idea that you could go into negative territory. Uh, so that was a frustration, but actually after I get something like that, then it seems that I was able to make progress quite quickly. So in fact, in preparation for university, mathematics, that was one of the subjects that I took at A-level that we have in Britain. So you, you take A-levels to go to university. And mathematics was one of them, English was another, and French was the third. So certainly systems of symbols is the kind of the point in common, I suppose, but Languages. I really enjoyed languages. Um, Do an, now tell me a little bit about your brother and your two hmm. sisters. Yeah. What were they like academically? Uh, my brother and my sisters, I think, were all... Um, I don't know in detail. Um, I think that my brother was very well educated. Um, he obviously had the intellectual talent for the schools that he went to. Um, none of us went on to a university like uh, Oxford or Cambridge, so we certainly weren't at the the top end of, the very top end of the educational spectrum, but we did well enough to get into good universities in my brother's case and my case. I thought it was a good university at the time, Nottingham University. Mm -hmm. He went to Bristol. Um, and then my two sisters, my, the elder of the two, she went to an art college, so she was an artist. And then the younger one, she actually went to a local technical college. So she wasn't, I think, particularly interested in studying to a, a high level. Um, and she then went on to become a speech therapist, so she found her vocation that way. How are your siblings hmm. doing now? Sorry? How are your siblings They're doing They're doing now? very well. Um, and your mother? My mother, she died, let's see, just oh. at the turn of the century. So it would be about more than 20 years ago. And you never met your father? Oh, no, I did meet him. I, I would sort of meet him for birthdays. Um, I'd go there to... Wait, starting from hmm. what age? Well, from as, a, as young as I can remember. So occasionally he'd come by and we'd go out to see his farm, or I'd go over and spend some time in the place where he so was you living. Knew you, so you knew you had a father? Oh yeah, and, I, mean, I, knew, I, mean, and I knew him. And you knew him. Hmm. And you <coughs> went to go see him, but the fact that he wasn't staying with you never bothered you at all? Nope. I have no, rem I have no recollection of thinking... Or even asking him, Dad, why don't you stay home with us? Yeah, that question, I don't think it ever occurred to me. It's very odd. Did he have another family? Did he ever start another family? No, he didn't. He, okay. he just actually, he lived the rest of his life basically on his own, but also with one of his sisters. Hmm. So, <coughs> on, yeah, so I think that was basically the situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but there was one occasion when I was sitting in the passenger seat of our, my car, our car, my mother's car, and she was driving. And we were driving through a local village, and then I thought, that's my father's car coming in the other direction. And for that one moment, I saw my father and my mother essentially in the same glance. 
That's the only time I ever saw them together was that one instant when the two cars passed. And you remember that? Yeah, it made a big impression. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. What about hmm. your folks? My mother and father separated when I was around eight years old. Oh. And it wasn't a pleasant separation. Hmm. And I remember that. I chose to stay with my father. Hmm. They became friends, and I would have to go help my two younger sisters stay with them sometimes. Ooh. And I recall running away from my mother's home to my father's place, going across city, because hmm. I would remember the route. Oh. And I would get there. <laughs> I'd get to my father's place. He pretended like I wasn't there, because my mother could time about how much time it would take for me to get there, as I realized as I got older. So I must have been about, like I said, seven or eight. Oh. And I'd run away. I'd tell my sister, stay in the front yard and don't go anywhere and don't go into the street, stay here and go back after you don't see me anymore. And I would take off and get to my father and he'd see me and smile. Hmm. And when I turned 15, my mother moved to the East Coast and I decided I wanted to stay with my father. Hmm. So I did, so he raised me. Hmm. In really important times in my life hmm. because I was, I'd reached puberty and everything, so I think it was good that I stayed with my father. My mother's still alive. My father died when he was 72, hmm. and I was with him, not when he passed, but I was with him for 80 hours. He had me leave. They tricked me, and I'd brought my mother from the East Coast because he never stopped loving her. Huh. Never stopped. I couldn't, anyway, I couldn't understand that. Hmm. I couldn't understand that. And then he said, go on home. And I said, Dad, I came here to be with you. And he said, that's okay, I'll be all right. And so as I left, Oh. Yeah, I've heard a story actually about yeah. my, my father, and I, I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, but when he was approaching the end. Uh, At what age? At what age? He would have been quite young, younger than I am now. He, okay. I think he was in his late 50s. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, I mean, I could make the calculation, but I think that's about right. Too, yeah. um, but he was obviously approaching the end, and I think it was probably my brother and one of my sisters, maybe both of them, I'm not sure. I wasn't there. Um, but they were with him in the room. And at one stage, he just pointed. And they couldn't work out what it was that he was pointing at. And then they thought, maybe he's just saying, leave the room. So maybe it was a similar kind of thing. I've got right, no idea. Right, right. Mm. Let me ask you this, Adam. Hmm. When you finished college, hmm. what was the first job? When you finished in Nottingham, what was the hmm. first job that you had? I taught English. I went to Kuwait in the Middle East. What? Had you ever traveled outside of England prior to that? Uh, I went with my sister to Spain when I was about 16 years old, um, she, my father had given her a mini. My father gave a mini, you know, like a mini minor, one of those little minis. Uh, in those days, they were not like a mini, a mini as these days, which, right. is, which is pretty bulky it and was impressive. Really yeah. it, was, it was mini. <laughs> it, was, it was right around you. Yeah. yeah, it really was, yeah. And uh, so with one of her friends, we went to Spain. Uh, so we drove all the way through France into Spain, had a very, really memorable, uh, probably three weeks or so, um, and then I also went to Germany. So, in fact, we had um, a very influential German person who was an honorary member of our family. He was my sister's godfather. He lived in uh, Wuppertal in Germany, and I went to vis visit him. Uh, so I'd been around a little bit in Europe, uh, but never as far as the Middle East. So that was quite a big adventure. And what made you decide to go there, right out of college? Um, an absence of money. That was one thing at the time. So I was right out of college. One of the great things about um, university in those days in Britain was that the government, if you did not have a sufficient family income, they'd pay everything. 
So I went to university without paying anything, basically. And I didn't have much money. My, at home, we didn't have much money. We started out living in a very nice house, but then we moved into a smaller house, which was also very nice. I enjoyed living there very much, big garden. But it was quite clear that the money was running out. So you're running out of money and you're... Yeah, so I thought, well, I've got to do something. And uh, teaching in the Middle East uh, was one way to make some money using the qualification that I had. So I did a crash course in teaching, a one-month course in London. And after that, I was offered a job in Kuwait. And so I went to Kuwait and taught there for just under a year. And you're 21, 22? Uh, let's see, probably, yeah. So that would have been when I was 21. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. And you stayed there for a year? Just a year. What was it like? It was obviously very new. Everything about the place was new. One reason why I am very grateful that I spent a year in Kuwait at that time, it was actually at the time of the revolution in Iran. Uh, so we were feeling the effects of that a little bit. But um, one reason I was particularly glad that I spent time in Kuwait at that in those days was that I was able to have first-hand experience of Islam. Uh, without that, I don't know how my thoughts would have been colored later uh, by events that transpired. So the overriding impression I got of Islam was that it was a religion that encouraged people to believe in their trust for each other. Um, and I really liked that aspect, the way that people interacted and just the sense of trust in the relationship. So that was my big takeaway from my very, very superficial engagement with, with Islam. And I'm very glad I had that. Um, then at the end of that year, I got in a car with another teacher. We drove across Saudi Arabia into Jordan and ultimately to Damascus. So that was another interesting road trip for me. Um, and then I went to Greece, and I traveled around in Greece, and I basically I, I started to get the travel bug. And then after that, I went back to England, and I didn't actually leave England again for a few more months. I went to Edinburgh for the Edinburgh Festival, the Arts Festival, and I stayed with a friend there. I was cleaning the local bank in the morning um, and a, a bar on Waverley Station. And that was quite memorable because uh, they had a jukebox in that bar. And so every morning, uh, the night before, it would be shut down with songs still to play. So I would turn it on in the morning. And I don't know why it was. I didn't have to listen to the songs that the other people had chosen for some reason. But there was still money in the machine. So I could choose what I wanted to. So I, could, I had my own soundtrack for doing the cleaning in the bar every morning. And that was, that was a lot of fun. I remember that there was one song in particular. It was Mirror in the Bathroom. Uh, by a, a group called The Beat. I used to play that almost every morning. It was Scar. I really like that one. But anyway, so I did that for a few weeks. And then eventually I got this opportunity to come to Japan with the same company that employed me in Kuwait. So they had to teach, schools. To teach English? Teach English, yep. So okay. I came to Japan in 1981 as an English teacher. Where? I was in Jimbocho. Jimbocho. So you're here in Tokyo? I was in Tokyo, okay. yeah. I was living in Tokyo very briefly at the beginning. Um, I started off in Nakano Fujimicho. Uh, then I had a, um, my own little apartment in Shin Itabashi. Um, and then I had an opportunity to move to Kamakura. This was probably about four months after I arrived in Japan. And I thought, Kamakura, 
It's by the beach. I'd been there once already for the cherry blossom time and I'd seen the beach. So I knew a little bit about Kamakura just visually. And I knew that it was an old capital of Japan with a lot of interesting temples and shrines. And I thought, yeah, I think I'd like to move there. And so I went to live by the hiking course in Kamakura in 1981. And I love that place. But you'd just gotten here. Yeah. So you taught for a couple of months, you Oh, said. no, but I was commuting into Tokyo every day. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so I mean, actually, <coughs> the so teaching, it wouldn't start some days until 1.30 in the afternoon. Okay. Um, and then I'd teach through until... Isn't that a two-hour ride? Or what, how long it's, a bit, it's, well, it's always been about one hour from, one hour, from, one hour, from okay. Kamakura Station to Tokyo right? Station. Okay. And then on to Jimbocho. It's not long. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it wasn't too long. Uh, and I, it, I didn't have to start really early in the morning. Which was good because in those days I was really enjoying the bars. I really liked going to the bars, the snack in Kamakura. And I had one or two favorites. And I'd, st I'd spend far too much time and money in those places. So in 81, I'm thinking that's the bubble. I mean, the, hmm. the bubble economy was really strong then hmm. in 81. And snacks were still, let me think, I'm trying to remember if they were... That was the only place you could go late at night, I think, to eat because everything closed at, the department stores closed at 9 or something like yeah. that. Mm. They don't stay open until 10 on the weekends. Mm. And in the holidays, if we had holidays, it could stay up until 10 or 10.30, something mm. like that. But yeah, snacks were the place you went. They didn't have 7-Elevens. Not there then. A, there was no convenience stores. You went to mom and pop shops. That's a very good point. I'm trying to remember when I first and went and into a vending, convenience store. And vending machines. Vending machines, yeah. Outside that were a surprise for us coming from overseas. And you'd see, you could get almost anything you wanted in a vending machine. Literally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, amazing. And nobody would wreck them. <laughs> Touch them at all. No graffiti hmm. anywhere. Hmm. In those see, days. Yeah, the right. graffiti's come, but still. I know, but it's hmm. still, it's still, hmm. it's interesting. It's compartmentalized. It's mm. only in certain areas. Mm. They, mm. they know better than to go, but this area or that area. Yeah. It's very clear where you can go. Mm. Whereas in other countries, mm. it could end up anywhere. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And you find people trying to paint it and stuff. No, there, it works. Mm. This is a very fascinating place. Do you see yourself? I'll wait, I'll save that question till the end, but I'm going to ask you how long do you plan on being here? But anyway, so you started, you went to Kamakura, you taught English. Yeah. Then you did that for four years? Uh, no, I, I was on a two-year contract. But in fact, even before the end of the first year, this would have been in about September, October, uh, I happened to have a student in my class whose cousin worked at NHK. And um, she said to me, would you like to go and see NHK one day? And I thought, yeah, I'd love to. And in fact, my brother spent many years with the BBC. He was a, a producer with the BBC. And he had an opportunity quite early in his career. He had an opportunity to come to Japan. So in the 1970s, my brother had an opportunity to come to Japan and uh, work at NHK. And somebody from NHK went to the BBC. That was the arrangement they had in those days. And so my brother came to NHK and worked there for, in fact, two years. Uh, then I was hearing stories from him, actually, when I was back in Britain after Kuwait. And I went to visit him when he was actually cutting material about Japan. And I thought, oh, this looks kind of interesting. It wasn't necessarily the, the program itself. It was also the people I was seeing off camera and the little glimpses of everyday life that were happening, as it were, unscripted. Uh, and I thought, yeah, I'd like to go and see that place one day. Um, and so I had this opportunity. I was offered this job. 
And I, I came back and then I met this student and she said, would you like to see NHK? We went to see NHK. And one of the first people I spoke with at NHK, her cousin, no, it was, it was literally the first person I spoke with at NHK, her cousin. Uh, I said, uh, I don't suppose you remember Jonathan Fulford? And he said, oh yes, I remember him very well. And in fact, I went to the department where he had been working. Uh, they were making English news for broadcast on the radio. And they said, um, after I'd spent an hour or so looking around, he said, if you'd like to um, consider working here part-time, we can provide a test. And so I did the test, I passed the test, and so I started working part-time at NHK. This was also in 1981. Using a pencil to adjust scripts that were written on typewriters by Japanese journalists, and uh, then those scripts were read by a newsreader and broadcast to the world. So that was my introduction to NHK. But you're still close with NHK, right? You're Very still close. doing work with them. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's 30 still. years later, wow, my it's, goodness. Yeah, it's actually, it's 40. 40, 40, that's yep, right. 42 years, 42 years I've been working with NHK. And um, yeah, they. I have a company that started in 1985, and NHK still right. accounts for most of our business, in fact, one way or another. Doing what? Well, these days, it's a lot of what we do ends up on the channel NHK World Japan, which is 24 hours in English broadcast to the world. So there are programs, you have an hour of programming, and about half of it is news, current affairs, and then the other half is generally programs about Japan, about Japanese culture, many, many different facets of Japan, and we work on those ones. So one of the programs that I'm particularly closely associated with is called Japanology Plus. And the presenter is a British um, broadcaster called Peter Barakan. And so we translate the script. And then when Emma Howard, who is a British uh, narrator, uh, she'll read the script. And I'll be offering her guidance. And then we also, sometimes I'll read one or two of the interview voices and other people come in and read other interviews and I'm directing them or at least supporting the direction of those people. So that's the kind of work that we do for NHK these days. And we do that for various different programs. One of them is a news program, it is Current Affairs. It's called Direct Talk, we support that program. But over the years we've done programs connected with Kabuki, for example. Uh, we've done programs that focus on bento. We've done all kinds of different programs. Design. Hmm. That is wonderful. Do you plan on, what do you see for the foreseeable future? Do you plan on living here indefinitely? Or are you planning yeah. on going back to England someday? I love going back to England. I love my family. I love seeing my family. And it, I have one or two friends in England I can still catch up with occasionally when I go back there. And so I do love going to England. But clearly I am rooted in this community now. And so I think it would be quite difficult for me to move, just pick up roots and move to England. Uh, my wife is Japanese and she doesn't speak English. Uh, so it would be pretty difficult for her to adjust in any case. But I just feel so much more at home in Japan. Uh, I never felt completely comfortable living in England. There were aspects of England that I loved, but there was something about it I've sometimes said this to people that I think if I had been born in Japan, I might well be living in England. It's that kind of thing. There's just something about not wanting to be where I was born. And I don't know, I can't analyze it. There's probably something 
deep in my past that explains it. Mm. But I now feel far more comfortable in this in-between identity in Japan, not completely being Japanese, but not completely being an outsider. Yep. You, how old are your kids now? Um, don't ask me the tough questions. Um, so let's see, the one's in the mid-40s. Okay. Um, then uh, the next one's in the mid-30s, and the, the youngest is around 30 now. So, so I'm assuming hmm. that you were married for at least 35 years. Uh, yeah, the, uh, well, the, yes, you're saying that because just before we, <laughs> we started the, the, uh, the, the broadcast, <laughs> my, the, the eldest daughter, she um, was 10 years old when I first met right. her. She came with the, yeah. She came with the marriage. She came with yeah. the marriage, right. Yeah, and then we put two together ourselves. But, um, and they're all girls? Yep, they're all girls, <laughs> yeah. So, and at one stage we were living with my wife's mother as well. So uh, for a time I was really badly outnumbered. Well, do your girls all speak English? Uh, actually, uh, two of them do the speak English ones. pretty well, the younger ones, but that's not thanks to me. So when I, was, when I entered that family, so the daughter I met when she was 10 years old was speaking only Japanese. My wife spoke only Japanese, and so I went into that environment and I had to speak Japanese. So Japanese became the language of the family. Then the next daughter was born, and Japanese was being spoken around her, but I made an effort to speak in English with her. And it reached the stage when she was maybe one or two years old, where in the morning she'd say good morning. And it reached that stage. And then she went off eventually to um, kindergarten. And hey, all of these other kids are speaking this other language that they speak at home, Japanese. I don't know what dad's speaking, but I'm not interested in that one any longer. I'm going for this one. And so essentially from that day forward, it was all Japanese with her. And I would still use English with her, um, but she wasn't really developing her English skills at that stage. There was just one occasion. We live in Hayama, and we went to the beach in the summer, and we were splashing around in the sea, and my daughter turned to me, that daughter, and she said, good idea. And just out of the blue, she just said that one thing to me in English. Um, so I've treasured that. Uh, but then what actually happened was that when she got to the age of about, I don't know what it was, maybe 14, she and her younger sister, who would have been about nine years old at that stage, they kind of got together and thought, might be something to this English. Maybe it's, there's some value in this language. They're um, close in how many years difference? They're about four, four or five years different. Okay. But they're pretty close. Um, and um, they decided to find a teacher. It wasn't going to be me. They found their own teacher in town, and uh, they went off to that teacher for English lessons every week, Japanese person actually, and she taught them very well. And they ended up knowing English pretty well, and to the extent that, in fact, the middle daughter, who has inherited the art gene from one or two other members of my family, if that's one way of expressing it, I don't know, but anyway, she ended up going to graduate school in London. So she did very well to study English to the extent that she was able to get through graduate school in London. And the younger sister wanted to spend a little time in London while the older sister was there. And we only speak in Japanese in everyday life. Um, and so I said, are you going to be okay with the English? And she replied in English. I don't remember exactly what she said. She said, oh yeah, I think I'll be okay. But it was almost that fluent. And so unknown to me, she had essentially mastered conversational English and never used it with me. <laughs> Uh, but since then, we actually have been using English a little bit more um, in conversation and in texting and so on. But that's the extent to which it, it, J Japanese was central to my everyday life. And I'm still not very good at it, actually. 
I'm far from bilingual, but I speak Japanese. Right. Hmm. And I'm sure, do you have dreams too also in Japanese? That's a very interesting point. For years I didn't. But this actually takes me back to my childhood. <clears throat> because we had guests. One of the things that my mother did, did because we were, you know, financially we, we weren't comfortable. She would have foreign guests staying with us in the summer. And that was another reason. I think that could explain a little bit why I was interested in traveling later. Because these foreign guests would come from France, from Spain, from all over the place. One time from Japan, actually. And I would be exposed to people who came from very different backgrounds. And I loved it. I just really enjoyed meeting these different people. And uh, they would say, after they'd been staying with us for a couple of days, I've started dreaming in English, uh, which I found impressive. And then I started learning Japanese. And literally for decades, <laughs> I didn't have any dreams in English, in Japanese. Uh, and so I thought, what is wrong with my brain? Uh, but then gradually it started creeping in. But normally I'd be speaking Japanese and the person in the conversation would be like, what? You know, like they weren't. <laughs> so clearly I wasn't speaking fluently in my dreams either. Adam, before I end the podcast, I want you to promise that you'll come back again because I want you to talk about Now How, your company that does so much for Japan and continues to. So you have to promise that to me, that you'll come back again. I'd be very happy to promise that. That's so good. Now before I end, I always like to ask this question. If you could magically go back in time and meet the younger Adam and give him advice, what advice would you give him and how old would he be? If you're, going, if you're thinking about going to Japan, learn the kanji, learn how to write the kanji. How old would he be? How old would he be when, he, when you told him that? Well, I, I suppose the first time that I actually started thinking seriously about moving to Japan would have been when I was 21 or whenever it was, that uh, 22 possibly. Ah, no, it would have been 23. But um, at that stage, I think I would have actually grabbed myself by the lapels and say, learn the kanji, because with or without kanji just transforms your experience of Japan. Not simply in terms of being able to read things around you in everyday life, but really being able to understand what's going on. Um, the and being able to produce them as well. Just not being able to function um, to the extent that I still find it difficult, for example, not that I need to do it these days, to write a shopping list. Um, I can't even do that in, you know, comfortably in Japanese. I have to think about pretty much every single character. So it's really something that I could have benefited from so much if I'd mastered it, say, 30 years ago. It obviously takes a few years, but if I'd spent, say, five years of intense study on reading and writing kanji, my whole life here would have been very, very different, I think. Thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Lance. I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast. Make sure you press like and subscribe. And never forget, it's all on loan, so continue to reach for the stars. Because you're too blessed to be stressed.